Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We uh, we're going to compile a UPR book list today. It's a program we do uh, periodically, and uh, we know you're avid readers, and uh, so. We get together to uh, provide suggestions for each other. That's a fun program. We'll have to postpone that. My uh, usual um, uh, co-host for the program, uh, Lane Thatcher, is under the weather. And uh, to add to that, uh, several of our usual booksellers that we have on, they're all gathered at a uh, book convention. So (laughs) good luck to them, and we'll we'll, uh, get them on uh, maybe next week. Um, so in the meantime, uh, coming up, uh, following a couple of uh, comments uh, from uh, yesterday's program, we'll repeat my conversation from a couple of months ago uh, with Graham Simpson, a delightful Australian author. You uh, may have uh, read his uh, book, The Rosie Project, um, in which uh, Don Tillman, an IT worker, very nerdy, uh, sets out to uh, get a wife, um, through a scientific method, um, a long questionnaire. And predictably, um, it doesn't happen the way he thinks it uh, would. He ends up with a wife who's, according to the questionnaire, uh, terrible for him, but it turns out to be perfect. In this third book that we'll talk about uh, coming up, The Rosy Result, uh, Don is worried about his 11-year-old son, Hudson, who's on the autism spectrum. Um, we'll talk about autism and much else. Delightful conversation that is coming up. I wanted to get in a couple of uh, comments in full from yesterday. At the very end of the program, I truncated these two uh, comments in our conversation about disengagement, how many people are disengaging from the news and from politics. I wanted to get these in full since we have a little bit of time today. Uh, so here is uh, an email from Robin in Vernal. Robin says, my quick experience. We live in a rural area of Utah, and for the first time, I decided to get involved in the local public service. I ran for a nonpartisan school board position, worked hard, and won. The campaign was a brutal process. My opponent joined up with the other two candidates and had a political platform, per se. It was a crazy process, crazy in caps. Our local uh, newspaper seems to have no problem running ads from private citizens with biased or personal agendas that drag people through the mud based on non-factual, petty, perceived, or personal conspiracy theories because these few loud voices can pay for these ads. The paper also will print personal emails or letters to the editor that uh, are inflammatory. The main thing we see is these straw man fallacies over and over again. It's disheartening and it's been a wild ride for me. I keep wondering where ethical conduct has gone and common sense. There's also one radio outlet that has a clear bias leaning toward the same group of people. Where is the ethical adherence to being neutral and giving people both sides of the story and then trusting that they'll make good decisions? I actually dread Tuesdays now because that's when our paper comes out. It causes me to stress and anxiety because of the things that are going into print. It's Robin and Vernal. Uh, postscript, she says, yes to civic ed. And this is from Sin. Um, spelled H-S-I-N, Sin says, I'm an Asian immigrant in my early 30s who grew up in Logan. I consider myself a left-leaning progressive. I've grown tired of the gatekeeping on either side. It's odd how far you must lean to be considered part of the tribe. I've also disengaged because I realize the rosy on the the noise online and in the media are a minority convincing the majority. Since Trump's election, I've only spent more speaking, uh, spent more time speaking to Trump supporters. And as a progressive, I realize that most people aren't the stereotypes we see online and in the media, and their political identities are much more complex than they're portrayed in sound bites and headlines. At the end of the day, I feel like we're distracted by trying to win each other. 
rather than for, uh, that we that uh, so that we forget to hold our politicians accountable. That is seen. So thank you for those. Keep those comments coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. Now here's uh, my conversation with Graham Simpson. For genetics professor Don Tillman, parenting requires a methodical approach. When the school calls to tell Don and Rosie their 11-year-old son Hudson is struggling to cope, Don commences the Hudson Project. All too familiar with his own social difficulties, Don decides to do some research. Could it be that Hudson is on the autism spectrum, as the school suggests? And if so, what does it mean? Is it a disability or just a difference? Does Hudson need treatment or acceptance? And as Don hunts for answers, Hudson has his own ideas. The book is The Rosie Result. This is the third in the Don Tillman trilogy. The first two books, uh, The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect, were bestsellers. Graham Simpson, welcome to the program. Good to talk to you, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Uh, yeah, Graham, like Graham Crackers and Simpson. Um, Simpson, okay. If you meet, if you meet another Simpson, they're a relative, <laughs> okay. so uh, you, won't, you won't need to worry about that. That's wonderful. Um, I, I talked to you about the Rosie uh, Project a few years ago, a wonderful conversation. That's right. Um, I, I want to ask you about, the, just revisit a couple of things. Uh, first of all, you, you made a big career change at, at about age 50, mm-hmm. didn't you? I did. I used to work in information technology. In fact, I ran a business and IT consultancy that had about 70 staff. And I made a, a big life change and went back to school and studied screenwriting. That is a big change. Had you always wanted to do that? You know, I'd always wanted to be a novelist, not a screenwriter, but I didn't think I was up to it. You know, when, I, when you say you've always wanted to do something, it's like, yeah, and I, I always wanted to, to play football for Australia and um, I always wanted to be a rock star. But I never owned a guitar. You know, you you can have these dreams, but until you actually do something about them, they, they, they really count. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, Don Tillman. He's, uh, you know, he <laughs> bursts upon the public in in the Rosie Project, and that that was a big hit, and the, the second book as well. Um, so I mean, it, it's just a captivating character. He set about to to find a wife, the Wife Project, right? And he, based on his background. He develops a 16-page scientifically valid questionnaire. That's right. And, you, you know, people look at that and say, how crazy is this? But, you know, it's not that different from what we do when we go to the Internet these days for dating. Um, we, we start thinking about what it is that we're looking for in a partner. So Don, as a scientist, just takes that out to the extreme. And he wants, you know, he's never had a second date. He's almost 40 years old. Um, he wants to get married because research shows that married men are happier and they live longer. Don certainly wants that in his life, but he's just never found a woman who was appropriate for a second date. So he just figures that he's just got to, if he can pick the right, find the right woman, you know, it'll all sort itself out. And again, it's maybe it's impulse that many of us have had, but haven't quite approached it in this scientific manner, or, or as Don would, would, would say it. Uh, another quote of his, he says, I've sequenced the questions for maximum speed of elimination. That, that's right. He goes to a, a speed dating night, and this poor woman who he's, who he's talking to, he said, you know, sequence the questions, I can eliminate most women in about you know, th- in under 30 seconds, and then we can have a conversation about something else. And he goes straight to you, do you smoke? And she says, oh, occasionally, and he's right, <laughs> finished, done, <laughs> eliminated. Um, and, you know, so, so he's not the most sensitive guy on earth, but he's, but he's ultimately, and I think we find as we read the book, he's ultimately a very decent and, and ethical human being. 
so uh, did you base Don on anyone that, that you knew? Yeah, yeah, I did. On a whole bunch of people I met working in information technology. So you know, pe- people generally pick up, and particularly these days, they say, look, Don must be autistic. Don must be on the autism spectrum. Um, and therefore they say, so Graham, how much research did you do on autism? And my answer is, you know, 30 years working in information technology. I didn't, I didn't read books on autism. I, I just hung out with people who I, would, who I realize now are almost certainly on the spectrum, but we just didn't use that language back in those days. Um, those people, to my knowledge, didn't have diagnoses. So, so in fact, when, um, when people would come to me later and say, well, is Don autistic or is he not? I would have to say, well, look, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a clinician. These are just guys that I, that I knew. I'm not the expert. And it wasn't, in fact, until I sat down with um, one of the gurus, uh, you know, a, um, a quite well-known spokesperson on, um, on what he would call Asperger's syndrome, um, Tony Atwood, um, that I said the same thing to him. I said, look, I don't know. I, Don Tillman, you know, I'm not a clinician. And Tony said, well, I am, and Don Tillman has Asperger's syndrome. So he was sort of officially diagnosed back there in about 2013. And in fact, by the time we get to the rosy result, you've dedicated this book to the many people in the autism community who've inspired and supported these books, quoting you. Yeah. Look, but just before I was, as I was getting ready to publish The Rosie Project, it was becoming obvious that many people would see Don as being autistic, or as we would say back in the day, as having Asperger's syndrome. And I was therefore very concerned that I didn't send out messages into that community or about that community which were false and and harmful and so on. So I ran it past some autism organisations and they came back to me and said, no, no, this is good. He's, a, he's not stereotypical. He's um, a good role model. He's a good guy and so forth. And I, and I found that after the book was published, the autism community really, you know, with, with exceptions, there's always going to be exceptions, but overwhelmingly took on Don Tillman as one of their own. And they've been terrifically supportive um, of the books, even to the extent of saying, this is a book we give to people when we want to say what it's like to be autistic as distinct from what it's like to look at somebody who's autistic, if that difference makes sense. Yes, it's autism from the inside. And I say right now, I don't identify as being autistic myself. Um, one of the main themes of the of this latest book, The Rosy Result, is, uh, you know, do we label, do we not label? Is that harmful? Is it, is it good? Do we, do we cure or, or is it okay? Yep, and, that, and I will agree totally that is one of the themes of the book, and I won't answer the question okay. which way we go. <laughs> That's right, yes. Um, because because what, I, what I try to do when you're writing a book is I'm not trying to beat people over the head and say, this is what you should believe, or this is what I believe. You should take it on board. I'll try to persuade you. Um, as a writer, I try to open up the issues. I try to show both sides. I try to have people who, who speak for both sides um, in a dramatic way on these, on these issues. Obviously, I have my own views. They, they do end up permeating the book, but I hope not in a way that is, is a polemic. Um, so since The Rosie Project was published in 2013, uh, the conversation around autism has, has changed quite a bit. What, in, in what ways? Oh, look, it's changed radically. I think there have been two or three things that really have changed it. One of them is the absorption of what we used to call Asperger's syndrome into that broader category uh, of autism, and that was driven by clinicians, by the, by the psychiatrists in particular with their... Uh, diagnostic and statistical manual and I think what I was thinking at the time was wow those people who were who labeled as being Asperger's who we often, we often associate them with being high performers in academe and so forth you know the nutty professor very much the sort of 
Don Tillman sort of stereotype versus what we might have called you know, the hard-end autistic people who might um, you know, not have speech, for example, who might struggle in a lot of very basic sort of day-to-day activities. Say, wow, those, those scientists aren't going to want to be in there with those, those kids who are you know, non-verbal and so on. They're going to separate themselves and say, we want to hold on to our label. It didn't happen that way. What happened was that community recognised, I guess, that the clinicians had got it right, that they did share more in common than they had as differences, and so they've combined. So what happens, I think, is that the people who were, who would have really struggled to make their point now have some very powerful um, and articulate people on their side. Um, I think the, uh, the second thing that has happened is social media, and I think social media has turned out to be a really great platform um, for activists in the autism community. I mean, there's been a rise in activism. So that's another thing. A rise in activism, I think, enabled to some degree by social media. Um, and the autism activists are out there, just as any we might see any other minority group that has struggled in the past or would see themselves as legitimately, I think, as having been oppressed in the past, getting out there and saying, you know, we're out and we're proud. Um, so... And, and all of that has led to, I think, just a much, much greater um, community awareness um, of autism. And we've got higher diagnosis rates. What I should add to that is a much stronger recognition of, of women um, who are autistic. Um, back in the day, not that long ago, the diagnosis rate was about 1 in 10 of people diagnosed as autistic were, um, were female. These days, it's getting more like 1 in 3. And if you draw the curve, I guess we can all see it heading towards... One to one. Um, Don is such a fascinating, you know, wonderful character. He obviously he's 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 hit. The book's been bestsellers, um, along with the other characters. I wonder. Um, well, let me talk about how the the book opened. I mean, it's it's funny, right? Don Don is funny. Well, yeah. This is this is meant to be a comedy. This yeah. Is, these books, these three books, the Rosie Project, the Rosie Effect, the Rosie Result. They're all meant to be comedic, and and, and obviously there's a there's a line to walk there when you're writing comedy about a serious topic. Um, so, uh, as as we open the Rosie result, um, Rosie comes home to find uh, Don um, cooking in his pajamas. <laughs> tell, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Well, look, we just want to set up Don in every book, and and Don is a guy who he does things that, that most of us, certainly neurotypical people, as they would say, that's weird. You know, what's the guy doing standing on one leg, shucking oysters in his pajamas? And I just wanted an image of Don doing something that will say, this is weird, but he's got a good logical explanation for it. He had a bit of a cooking accident, splashed some food on his clothes, splashed some oil on his clothes. So he thought, why, why go to an intermediate you know, set of clothes? I'll just go straight to pajamas because that's what I need next. So he's put the pajamas on and he's shucking oysters, which is what he's doing to make dinner, and he's doing single-leg dips for fitness. So he's doing a few exercises at the same time. as he can. So this is an efficient guy. What, what's wrong with what he's doing? Yeah, it's just a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> That's and, right. And that, uh, a lot of what Don does has good good logic behind it, but we say it's a little unconventional. Yeah, it's it depends on what you talk about. He's also uh, puzzling over a performance review. Which he has avoided for many years, and now, now I guess the supervisor is cracking down on him. Yeah, yeah. So Don, Don, Don's in New York when when the story opened. Um, the, the Rosie Project, the first book, was set in Melbourne, Australia, which is my hometown. And then at the end of that book, they moved to New York, and the, the Rosie Effect is is set as they're 
um, as their relationship sort of develops in, in New York City. And we start this book um, in New York um, with Don and Rosie, both having academic positions at uh, Columbia University. So, you know, she's, a, um, she's an academic as well. Um, they're all settled um, to, some, to some extent. And then um, the, big, the big change is Rosie gets offered a, a better job back in Melbourne. So they're going to they're move back to, back to Australia and that is going to unsettle their 11-year-old son. He's going to find that change, as kids often do at that age, as I did at that age. Um, that change from where you finally settle in a place to, uh, to be quite disconcerting. So before we uh, treat that, uh, tell me a bit about uh, Rosie. She, of course, the 16-page scientifically valid questionnaire. Uh, Don setting out to find a perfectly compatible wife, and uh, in the end, that's what he gets. It's it, perfect for him, but uh, <laughs> you wouldn't have yeah, predicted I this. Mean, I mean, the story the story could have been Don sets out 16 pages, of double-sided pages of questions, and Rosie walks in, she checks all the boxes, and at the end of the story. But of course, the story doesn't go like that. Rosie checks none of the boxes. She smokes. She turns. She shows up late. She's you know, she she works in a bar. She's just totally not the right person for Don. But they discover that there's more to um, more to compatibility, more to love than there is than just checking boxes and so forth. So um, they're they're, they're different, um, even though they have work in quite similar fields um, in the end. Um, Rosie um, and and I think I've tried to create a marriage in, in this book, you know, a, a sort of a mature marriage because they've been together now for twelve years, um, where they have they figured out how to work together, and I wanted to show that on the page. And, it, and in fact, my publisher said, Graham, this is um, one of those rare things in books—a portrait of a happy marriage." And without being too cheesy, I'd, I'd say I probably drew on my own um, very fortunately successful marriage. Um, as a model for Don and Rosie's marriage. Tell me about those, you know, Don and Rosie, those differences. Um, you know, that can be a strength, right? You you play off each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing, Don, one of Don's big weaknesses, which actually gets him into a big, big trouble in this book, is he's not a man for reading the room. He's not a guy for generally seeing what's going on. He's not too bad in the lecture theater because that's his, you know, that's where he you know, spends most of his time. But complicated social situations he's likely to lose track of the subtle things that aren't being said. Whereas Rosie is, is good at that. She can pick up what's going on. Um, Don, um, uh, Rosie's a, a little likely to get emotional, and, and I know it sounds a little like a sort of a male-female stereotype, but, but Rosie's a feisty person who, who wants to fight back. Uh, you know, if something goes wrong, she, she's going to be right in there and say, let's fix these guys, let's do something. And Don's the... The, the cool, rational guy who says, well, you know, how is that going to help our situation? And we'll let him prove it. Will we get the outcome we want? And so on. So Rosie's going to be the one who's going to galvanize them into doing something. And particularly because in this book, we're going to see the two of them are going to be up against the education system, which is, you know, doing its best, but is um, probably failing their son, Hudson. And so they're going to be fighting the education system. And Rosie's approach to fighting is, you know, let's, let's beat these guys up. And Don's Don's approach is a little a little cooler, a little more rational. Rosie, uh, I want to get into to how how you uh, treat a character like Don. Rosie interacts with him; she teases him, right? Um, yeah, she, she's yeah. kind of a she's foil. Happy. But she gets him. She does. She does. She gets yeah. Him. She teases him, and she knows how far she can tease him without um, without being cruel to him. Uh, it's out of love, obviously. 
so I wanted to ask you, how do you, you know, how do you create a character who's uh, obviously has some deficits in self-perception, <laughs> and that's where comedy comes from, right? Um, but, but, you know, but, but to encourage the audience to, you know, to like him, not, not to make fun of him. Yeah, look, I think he wins some, he loses some. So we, sometimes the truth is, you know, people say to me, oh, we never laugh at Don. And I say, well, well, you're being too kind to me. Sometimes we do laugh at him. We do laugh at him when he gets it wrong. Um, but then he's going to win some as well. There's a scene in the first book where um, he he works, um, does a night's work as a cocktail um, cocktail server at a, at a medical reunion because for all sorts of nefarious purposes, which we won't go into now, but people who've read the book will know about this. But in, the, in that scene, there's a, a physician who's making fun of him, um, and Don sort of you know, fires straight back with quotes from the uh, Journal of Neurology and so forth, and, and really just takes this guy down. And, it's a, and people find that a really funny scene, but you know, we're on Don's side there. He's, he's winning. So it goes back and forth, and the question you've got to ask, I think, at the end is not, did I laugh at Don? Do I laugh with Don? The question I think you ask is, at the end of the book, how do I feel about Don? Is this a person that I feel um, is a good person, is someone who I would like to have as a friend, who I value as a friend, who I write a reference for? You know, is he a good person? And I think when you get to the end of the book, all of the books, most people would say, yeah, Don's a good guy. I like Don. And, and I think that's the balance of the comedy. That the comedy. Whereas if you got to the end and said, the guy's an idiot, then, I would, then the comedy would have made fun of him. So... That, that's my test. I don't want to be on every time I'm writing a little bit of comedy, say, oh, I've got to be careful. I've got to make sure I'm not making fun of Don or anything like that. Because, you know, we make fun of our friends. We laugh at our friends. Um, we laugh with our friends. And I want Don to be to be that guy. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about this transition. What well, have you tell me about Hudson. He's 11 years old. And he's making a big transition in his life. And you mentioned before, and I'd like to have you tell me about that. You made a big transition about that age. Uh, in in your yes, life, true. yeah. Um, so we'll uh, we'll we'll talk about Hudson, uh, a main character of the latest. It's the uh, third in the trilogy. The Don Tillman trilogy is called the Rosie Result. The first two books, the Rosie Project and the Rosie Effect, were bestsellers. The Rosie Result is out now. More yeah. following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over forty five years offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. UPR is everywhere you go. With classical music programming, news, and information, statewide through 36 Signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org, and through the new UPR app, UPR is only a push of the button away. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have Graham Simpson on with us. He is author uh, previously of uh, two books in the Don Tillman trilogy, The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect. Those were bestsellers. The latest is now out, The Rosie Result. After more than a decade of happy marriage, things are going well for Don and Rosie. A telephone call throws their world off balance. Their son, 11-year-old Hudson, has always been a smart kid. Now his teachers say he's having trouble socially. They're suggesting an autism assessment. It's the plot in brief of uh, this latest book, The Rosie Result. Before we get into Hudson, Graham Simpson, I want to, uh, I was reading an article or an interview that you gave. You were talking, as we uh, we talked earlier in the uh, program here, about uh, many changes since 2013 in the Rosie Project in the, the autism community and how it's viewed and uh, 
and, and how the community is is progressing. One thing, and you talked about this social media, and um, I hadn't really thought this this through, but uh, you said it's a good way. Uh, social media is a good way for people on the spectrum to communicate in writing rather than having to worry about body language. Yeah, look, it's, a, it's maybe a minor point, but um, so, social media, um, A, has that global reach, so you can bring people together from, from all around the world. So even if you're in a community where there's only two or three people um, on the spectrum that you know well, suddenly you're open to all of those people um, worldwide. Um, but, but the other thing, one of the things is that... Um, People, um, uh, you know, autistic people sometimes have, 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 have struggled um, in the, those one-on-one interactions um, uh, with, with neurotypical people. Um, on, uh, on social media, um, you've got the opportunity to think about what you compose, your only what you write, not, not how you look or whether you're meeting someone, gaze or any of those things. It's just what you put down and you've got time to think about it. And you can say, you know, um, you know again, sometimes... Um, um, autistic people uh, speak before they think. Um, well, you know, if that's an issue for you, you type it out, you look at it, you take your time, you edit it, you press send. So it's, I think it's been a very effective, but certainly demonstrated it's been a very effective uh, medium for bringing together autistic people and um, having their views heard by a wider audience. So we've got Don Tillman, we've got uh, Rosie, and their, now their son Hudson. And in the, the Rosie Effect, they're in New York, right? But then uh, they're, they're now going to move uh, to Australia, I think, for Rosie's job, right? Yeah, look, look I, I just forgot to say something back there, which, which I should have mentioned. Some, some, some autistic people are actually nonverbal um, or not always able to be verbal and speak. And, and pretty obviously, if you're a nonverbal person, but you can type at a keyboard, um, social media, that way of communicating is, is absolutely a, a huge step forward. And you don't even have to show anybody that you're, that you're non-verbal, although many people would actually share that. So, sorry, keep going, but I wanted to just make that point. Yeah, that, that's that's an excellent point. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a, a great advantage for for people who are non-verbal. Uh, yeah. So uh, Hudson, a big transition in his life. He's going to move, family's moving, so he's moving as well uh, from New York uh, to Australia. Um, you had a big transition about that same age in your life. Yeah, yeah. I moved from New Zealand um, to Australia. I'm at about the same age that Hudson is in the book, and that, that's no coincidence. Um, I, I decided to write Hudson at that age. I mean, I could have made him a couple of years younger, a couple of years older, but I remembered that year of my life so vividly that I thought there's going to be a lot that I can draw on from, from that time. Um, and, you know, I don't... I tend to create my characters from, from real life. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, Don Tillman is one person I knew. He's actually a bunch of people all mixed up in a pot together and a bit of imagination thrown in. But I didn't have the luxury of knowing a whole bunch of, of people in that sort of teenage or pre-teenage age. Uh, my kids are more grown up now and so on. And that was a problem for me. But then I thought, okay, I've got myself. Um, and I, the first time I've consciously, I think, drawn on myself for, um, for creating a character. What was your, um, uh, you know, was it, I mean, you know, when you're 11 years old, I guess you're uprooted. You you lose your friends, have to make new friends. The cultural differences as well. What was the what were the biggest things for you? Yeah, look, I have to say that um, Australia and New Zealand are not a million miles apart culturally. I mean, it's probably like U.S. and Canada if you wanted to draw a line. It's not as though I was moving to um, Africa or the Middle East or you know um, 
uh, or Asia or something, you know, somewhere where, where the language was radically different or, or culturals were, were hugely different. But there were enough differences, and I think part of it was just moving to a different school, just even moving to a different school, where I was going from one where I think I was, I was very, uh, valued is a strong word, but encouraged, looked after, appreciated for what I had, not beaten up too much for the things that I didn't have and so on, to a world where, which is probably a much more traditional school environment, where, you know, if you weren't good at sport, you were going to be in trouble. At sports, you were going to be in trouble. Um, I was a little kid. You know, I was two years younger than most of the other kids in the class because I was advanced in math and, and so on. And, you know, I had a pretty tough time. Um, and, and I think as I was, it wasn't so much about Australia New Zealand. It was just a, a change in school, a change in people, um, not having those long-standing friends that took you for who you were. Yeah, uh, that was my perception, not a million miles away, uh, in, you know, culturally. New Zealand and, and Australia. No. I, I, I didn't want to say it, though, to, to, you know, I didn't want to appear insensitive or, you know, politically no, no, incorrect. No, yeah, just look at the outsider. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've got, I've got a character, George, in the book, who you know, he tells about his school days. He came from the north of England to, to go to school in London. You know, so, and, and he's talking about how he was, he was the outsider and he was called a git because he was from, you know, from the north and all those sorts of things. Yeah, we, we'll, 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 kids will find a way to push away the outsider um, you want know, to pick on the outsider because they're vulnerable, and it, it doesn't matter if the outside in this is actually very minor. It might be a simple case of, you know, it might be skin color, it might be religion, it might be um, just where they came from, accent, those things. I wonder if I could pause here, and you know, I want to continue with Hudson and uh, his transition, but um, about these cultural differences, as you know, from Australia, traveling in the U.S., what, uh, what are anything especially strike you? Oh, look, language always, I have to remember to say sports instead of sport and math instead of maths, <laughs> little, little, little things like that occasionally, um, and just Australian expressions which, which, don't, which don't go over. I think the thing with the U.S. is it's such a diverse country that um, if you make generalizations, Australia is quite homogenous um, in terms of if you go to, to any of the big cities, you'll find the people and the places remarkably similar. I'm going to be told off for saying that if there are Australians listening, but compared with the US, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane are very similar, much more similar than, say, if I to say New York, Mobile, um, Minneapolis, um, San Francisco, Salt Lake City. Yeah. Yeah. These, these, are, these, are, these are cities with very different cultures, and then you've got you know, major regions, you know, people in, in rural places in the north are going to be different from people in rural places in the south culturally. Um, Australia, I think, is much more even than that. So the, the thing for me is, is the sheer difference and the surprise um, in the U.S. And, and there's a few things in the U.S. that, that, that we Australians just don't, don't quite get. Um, and I'm going to say guns um, because you know, U.S. Americans have a very different relationship with guns um, than we do um, in Australia, and to try to make comments about what goes on on that, you, know, you, you have to dig deeper than just looking at what's happening on the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly true, certainly true. I think there's you know, this cultural aspect to that, and historical. Uh, just one more, by the way, um, the, the recent elections there in Australia, remind, at least reading from it from afar, reminded me the shock of it, the unexpected uh, result, yeah. reminded me of our 2016 election here. Yeah, and the Brexit, uh, the Brexit result in the UK. Um, all, all, all situations where I think um, we didn't expect the, you know, the outcome wasn't widely expected or predicted, 
and the outcome was um, more to the right than, than people had expected. And that's certainly what happened in Australia. Was it was it your perception of being over there that it was was uh, quite shocking to most people the result? Yeah, look, it was such a surprise. One betting agency had already paid out on the the party of the left, the Labor Party. Really, even before the election, they said that this thing is so done and dusted that this thing is so finished. We are actually going to just make a gesture and we're going to pay out the bets because there's no way it's going to go the other way. And that's pretty extreme. So, so they lost a lot of money. They had to pay both sides. <laughs> They'd already paid out. It was so... Yeah, yeah they already paid yeah. out on the party that lost. Wow. Well, let's uh, get back to the book, The Rosie Result. Um, so one of, uh, I think, the thing that drives um, Don here is he he doesn't want his son to go, to experience some of the same things that, that he experienced, right? That's a very human impulse. He, I guess, protect his son, uh, uh, move his son in a different uh, direction than than he went. Yeah, look, I, I think that I started out this book with a, with a, a very basic sort of question I wanted to explore. I ended up exploring more things, but it's that question of do we try to mould our children or do we try to let them be themselves? And I know when I grew up, there was a very clear idea, a pretty clear idea of what it meant to be a man. And it was gendered. It was about being a man or a woman. And, and that the job of your parents in your school was to make you into a man, you know, an acceptable man who could do all the things that men were supposed to be able to do and had the right values and the right skills and so on. And today, I think we've leaned a lot more to the way of saying, well, whatever this kid is good at or likes or is, you know, has talent, will encourage and the things that he or she isn't so great at, we're going to let those go a little bit more. But that's all very well until you find out that your kid is struggling um, and that if you, without guidance and assistance, um, they're getting themselves into trouble, either by their own um, lights or by yours. And maybe they're getting arrested, maybe they're getting into drugs, maybe they don't care about those things, but you do. Um, so I wanted to explore that in the book. And, and in the book we have Don, who's had a real tough time at school, um, when he was a kid, because he was an outsider, and sees exactly the same thing happening to his son, and this is his chance to, to share with his son all the things he's learned about fitting in. But then we have the big question, is that is that really the goal? Should he be trying to you know, help his son fit in, or to help his son be, be himself? Yeah, that's a key question. Uh, fitting in, or, or you know, should the world accommodate uh, you know, Hudson's differences? And that's uh, the, the, the book, the book I don't know what you use the word struggled. The book, um, you know, treats that, explores that theme. Yeah, the book tries to put it, and these are, these are not simple questions because our ability to change the world is limited. Uh, we all know that. We might wish the world was different, but when it's your kid, you mainly have time to wait for the world to be different. You may just have to you know, go with it to your kid and it'll get, help them adapt or, or whatever it might be. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with uh, Graham Simpson. Uh, his latest book is The Rosie Result. It's the latest. It's the third in the trilogy, Don Til- Tillman trilogy. Um, and uh, the previous books, The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect, were bestsellers. This one's out now. We'll have more following this. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, Beezer Lock and Key, for sponsoring programming on Utah Public Radio. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. My name is Helen Cannon, and I garden in Cache Valley. Utah Public Radio is very important to me. It has been for much of my life. It's vital to my happiness. 
Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams, Graham Simpson is our guest for the hour. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Rosie Project, also the second book in the Don Tillman trilogy, uh, The Rosie Effect, and the latest is The Rosie Result. That's what we're talking about in the program today. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the humor. Uh, you know, don't want to lose sight as we talk about these issues that uh, uh, this is a comedy after all. Um, and Don Tillman's just a wonderful uh, character. Um, for example, he, uh, he's working his way down a long checklist of life skills that he deems essential for happiness. He's wanted to share this with his son. So it includes bike riding, sex education, making friends. For sex education, he compiles a video of animals mating, which he gives to, to Hudson. That's, <laughs> that's pretty good. This is uh, very logical to, to Don. Yeah, and, Don, and of course Hudson takes it to school as a kid is going to do, and he shows the other kids, and the teachers call Don into the office, and Don says, look, it's not pornography, it's animals. You, know, you can see this on the Discovery Channel, you know. this is." You know. Um, so he's, he's, all, he's all reasonable and right. And, uh, yeah, so, but um, I mean, he also ends up going to the school sex education night, and th- this is, is a little bit of this story is, is Don's fantasy is, he wishes he could go back to, to elementary school and and with all the knowledge he's got now, and then he wouldn't get into trouble. He could be, you know, he'd be the smart guy. He could have all the right answers. He'd, he'd, he'd be wonderful. And this, of course, happens in the book. He goes back. He actually ends up in the sex education class, this time accompanying his son. He gets asked a question. Suddenly everybody's laughing, and this is his great moment to sort of show everybody that he's got the smart with the answer. And the question is, does he? And then there's a schoolyard bully, and you know, these, and there's a, one of the parents and Don have, have you know has some disagreements, and suddenly he's confronted with him in the schoolyard. So we have a bit of fun with with Don you know, re-experiencing those things from his youth. <laughs> yeah, you you think you hope they're going to be different. Maybe if we all went back, it'd be kind of settled back into old patterns. Yeah, I think it's a fantasy for many of us. You know, that if I'd only at that moment done this, it would have all worked out better. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we share that. Um, so I don't know, you know, I don't want to spoil anything. I don't know how much you want to give away here, but uh, uh, he gets Don gets into trouble with what he calls the genetics lecture outrage. Yeah, this is this is pretty early in the book, and you know, one of the things is that after two books with Don Tillman, most most readers are totally on his side. They think you know Don's a real good guy, and so on, and. And some and some is a bit of a truth teller. He's the guy who calls out what's what's really true because he's got this scientific view of the world and so on. And and I wanted to use that and just let people know that he's not always going to get it right, and that you're still going to be on his side when he gets it wrong. Because in the real world, autistic people um, are sometimes truth tellers who who call it out that way, and and sometimes they just screw up socially um, by 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 you know, community standards. And we're going to say, well, are we going to give them a pass under these sort of circumstances? So I throw a situation where Don is accused of racism. Um, he doesn't mean it. We know, we know that in his head. He doesn't mean to hurt anybody. But you know, Rosie calls him out at a point and says, you know, you probably did hurt people doing what you did. Um, and, you know, I know people read that scene and have very different responses to it. Some of them will say, yeah, that's political correctness. It's good on Don for calling it out. And I was going to say, no, he was a jerk there. I'm not sure how I feel about that. And, and I wanted to explore that, that problem of people getting 
you know, we have to live by quite strict rules these days, and it applies even in the, in the autism community, where I'm, I'm careful as to whether I say an autistic person or a person with autism. You know, the, the community prefers the first one in general. So there's, there's all these rules to navigate, and that makes it even tougher for someone who's not great at doing doing that sort of thing. So I wanted to raise it. I wanted people to look at that, and I know that it's, um, it's been problematic for some readers. And that's an interesting question, um, this other question of uh, how much do we give people a pass? You know, if, if someone ha- does have trouble reading uh, social cues or, you know, their problems on the autism spectrum, uh, you know, how much do we give them a pass uh, for something like this, this mistake he makes with the genetics well, lecture? Well, you know what? My, my, um, my publisher said to me, he said, Graham, you forgive a lot of people in your books. There's a lot of forgiveness in your books. And this includes, you know, I've got two other books outside the Rosie series, um, The Best of Adam Sharp, um, which has got some infidelity in it, and um, Two Steps Forward, which is a book set on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the famous pilgrims, um, Christian pilgrims walking um, in France and Spain. And, and all of these books have, I think, a, a, a strand through them that, People are forgiven. People forgive each other. Um, not in every every case, but most of the time. Um, and I guess that that's a reflection of my own philosophy that um, you know it's very hard to make uh, to make a society work to make to be good people if we won't, aren't prepared to forgive. Um, so that's a very a very consistent sort of thing. And we see at the beginning of the book, in fact, that, that Don and his best friend Jean are estranged. They've had a falling out. And one of the questions there is, um, can either of them forgive the other for what they did? It seems like as a society, I'm talking about American society, one I'm familiar with, um, seems like we're going in the opposite direction, getting you know harder within ourselves and less willing to cut people some slack, forgive, at least in public yeah, life. Yeah, look, I, I, yeah, I, think, I think the other issue that's very closely related to that is this tribalism. This idea that everything that my side does is right, everything that your side does is wrong, and every every action is seen as deepening that division. Um, you know, like and it becomes like a loyalty to a football team instead of, particularly um, when we talk about politics, um, instead of an evaluation of, of what's going to be good and what's going to work, wherever that idea might come from, and the possibility of you know bilateral support for um, you know, for, for ideas that are going to be good for the community. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm a, a a great hater <laughs> of tribalism and what, it, what it's doing to our to our society. I mean, you even see it in the autism community, where I, I gave you the example of, of person-first language. Just an issue like whether you say person with autism or autistic person, you can read the, the comments on Twitter as people go at each other's throats um, over something like that. Um, we do so much to divide and not enough to pull people together. What's the solution, do you think? Oh, I'm a novelist. I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> uh, look, but, but, look, I think. Um, okay, so now, now I'll say I think novels are part of it. I think reading is part of it. Um, I think just as you had in that um, in that public service break a little bit earlier, they said have a barbecue, invite some people around who share have different views. Um, whether we do it in real life, whether we do it via reading, we've got to try to use that word empathise to get into the heads of other people and understand where they're coming from. It's like, you know, I mentioned about gun, you know, Australians not getting Americans with guns. And I've just and I've qualified that and said, look, 
before I have that conversation, before I react like an Australian and say, I can't believe that you guys are doing this, I've got to say, well, if I can't believe it, I'd better go back to understand where this has come from so I can believe it, because the people saying these things are actually probably decent human beings um, like me and my friends, whatever. Let's see if we can, you know, let's see if we can get some empathy going here, understand where things are coming from. So I think at the end of the day, it's the willingness to put yourself in the other's shoes rather than only see them from the outside. And I think, as I say, I think social activities, I think literature um, can help with those. You mentioned literature, fiction. I noticed reading from your blog, uh, you've been passionate about uh, getting men to read fiction. Like statistics, yeah. uh, more women read fiction than men. Yeah, well, it was a big surprise to me. I didn't realize that. But when I um, published my first book or submitted my first book, and uh, you know, they said, oh, this will be women's fiction because, you know, why? I said, because, you know, they said, well, because it's a story about people and relationships. Only women are going to want to read that sort of thing. And and that was that was really hard to take because hey, men are half of relationships as well, and I'm a I'm a man as a male protagonist. I, I was thinking you know, I read books, um, so I've been. The, the reality is that men, particularly older men, tend to read um, nonfiction. I think we carry a sort of view that what we read is got to be useful, um, and we don't think useful can be. Um, you know, we don't think learning to understand how other people think is useful, which is pretty crazy when you think about it because probably one of the most useful things we can do is to get to other people's heads. Um, I've been fortunate enough for these books, I think, because they've got strong... Um, they've got male characters in them, um, in, in sort of family situations and so forth, that I've had some really great male champions. So I'm going to be talking to Nicholas Kristof uh, of the New York Times um, later, in the, later in the week, um, Bill Gates has been a terrific supporter um, of the entire Rosie series, um, so, so that, that's been a big that's been a big help. And I think when I write, I sort of consciously put a lot of facts into the books. And I've had a lot of guys read the book and say, "Well, that was all right because I learned some stuff. I read this book and I learned a whole bunch of stuff about autism I didn't know. So now I understand our grandkids better, or our nephew better, or our niece better, whatever." So that's valuable. And even with something like The Best of Adam Sharp, which has got a lot of music in it, they say, oh, I didn't realize that back in the 1960s, this band did this or this or this. So you know, there is stuff that, you know, this stuff is gendered. Um, and overall, I, I think men enjoy a book that, that teaches them something. Um, that, that almost makes them feel like they, they haven't wasted their time. <laughs> What has been the reaction? You mentioned that you know some famous people have been the champions of the book. What um, kind of regular folks? What's the reaction been? Oh well, I bought the book, which is <laughs> the books, which is nice. So yeah, that's good. That's good. Copies of these books, so so that yeah, and around the world. So what it's translated very well. I think it's in about forty languages or so. So it's clearly a story and a character that translates into into different cultures. And look, I think the thing that, that I'm really happy about is that the, um, well, these, these days, you, if you want to know what regular people think, you just look at Goodreads and you look at the, the star rating and that's going to tell you something because it's you know, lots and lots of people. And the rating on this latest one, the Rosie result, is even stronger than the first one, the Rosie, the Rosie Project. So I'm enormously gratified by that because you, know, you like to get better um, at what you do, but um, people usually have a great affection for the first book and because it's a love story, the first book, you know, that, that's got a certain appeal as well. 
I was reading uh, one woman read your, I, I'm not sure which one of the, the trilogy, read it as she was dying so she'd feel happy at the end of her life. Yeah, yeah. Look, that, that's actually, that was, that was I saw that, that quoted. Um, it was, in fact, um, she had her sister read it to her. So her sister um, read her this, the Rosie Project aloud um, as, she was, as she was passing. Um, and, yeah, this woman, yeah, the sister, shared this with me at, um, at a book talk in, in Australia. And I was, you know, very moved. I was quite choked up by the by the story. And I thought, wow, you yeah. know, if you knew when you wrote that that your book would have this sort of impact, um, wow, I don't know how how easy you carry that burden. And I guess I'm not not sort of bragging about, you know, wow, my book changes lives. I'm I'm just saying flatly, my book changes lives. My books do because all books do. All of us, I guess, have had our lives changed by something we. Looks like we've lost uh, Mr. Simpson. Uh, let's uh, go to a promotional announcement and uh, and, uh, and get Mr. Simpson uh, back here. We're talking with uh, Graham Simpson, um, author most recently of The Rosie Result. Uh, that's the third in the Don Tillman trilogy. The pre- previous two books have been uh, bestsellers, The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect. Uh, do we have you back, Mr. Simpson? I, I am back on the line. Okay, great. I, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. We're, we're happy to have you back here. Um, so, uh, just uh, yeah, you were you were saying the, you know, the power of literature and um, and the yeah. the effect on on your readers. Yeah, look, I, I, all of us have had. I think probably something we've read has changed our lives. It doesn't have to be the greatest literature. It just happened to land at the right time. And I guess I should have realized that my books would, you know, covering a, a sensitive topic like autism and so forth. We're going to land with some people at exactly the right moment. And I've had people who've gone and sought autism diagnosis after reading their book and even become activists in that field. I've had people who've used the books as therapy in their marriage. And I'm enormously gratified. I mean, for me, that's the biggest kick I get out of writing um, when individuals come and say that the book has um, affected their lives in some way. I want to, before we end, we just have two or three minutes left, um, and you made a brief reference to it there. Uh, it's a major theme in the book. Um, both Don and his son Hudson um, are being encouraged, being encouraged by some people to get a diagnosis. Yeah. And, you know, get the diagnosis or not. That's uh, some important questions there. Yeah, look, look, I have my own views on this, but I have to say that the picture you get out, the overwhelming picture you get from the world is that people who suspect they might be autistic, who get a diagnosis and find that they are, are generally enormously relieved um, because they have an explanation for what's been going on in their lives. They have community. They have all these things. Um, stepping back from it as, as a scientist, if you like, I, 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 you know, I can't, I can't deny that. Um, but I just wonder if. Yeah, what do we do with the people who don't get a diagnosis, as it were? Um, let, let, let not the idea that we, we care a lot about a particular group of people take away from the idea that we should care about all people. And if someone doesn't fit a particular diagnosis, um, then A, that shouldn't stop us from accepting them, and it shouldn't stop them from accepting themselves. Just about a minute left. Um, I think the Rosie Project's been optioned for a film. Yeah, yeah, I was in, in Los Angeles talking to Sony Pictures, to TriStar Pictures, just um, just a few days ago, and we have a little movement on that, uh, which um, hopefully there'll be an announcement shortly. Um, but, yes, um, Sony Pictures have got the rights to um, to the Rosie series, um, and, in fact, um, Fox Searchlight have got the rights to Two Steps Forward and Tony Collette um, of 
Mr. Uh, State Tatara um, has picked up um, the best of Adam Sharp. So I've got a lot of lottery tickets in my back pocket, hoping one of them's going to come through. <laughs> will you be, if it comes through, will you be writing the screenplays? I wrote the screenplay for okay. the, um, the Rosie Project, and of course it'll have many editors before it goes, goes up there. Um, and likewise for the best of Adam Sharp. Um, Two Steps Forward, um, which I co-wrote with my wife, we decided we wouldn't do the screenplay, we'd let them, um, let them find the, a screenwriter so we, the two of us wouldn't be fighting over it because I'm the only screenwriter in the family. So it, one lottery you won was this, uh, this idea, this hope, this dream that uh, at age 50 I'm going I'm to make a change and it's, it's worked out for you. What would you say to people who have that kind of in the back of their minds? Yeah, look, don't expect it to work out for you financially, um, but I, mean, I was super lucky there. But um, if you're going to change career, all I would say, the most important thing I learned from my first career was how hard I had to work to get to the top of it. If you want to be a writer and you want to be a successful writer, expect to have to work as hard as you would have to work to be a neurosurgeon, for example, because there's more jobs for neurosurgeons than there are for successful writers of fiction. But conversely, the people I've seen who have worked that hard have got a pretty high success rate. Well, the book is The Rosie Result. It's the latest in the Don Tillman trilogy, which began with The Rosie Project and continued with The Rosie Effect. Uh, the previous two were bestsellers. And uh, Graham Simpson is the author and has been our guest. Graham Simpson, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Great talking to you again, Tom. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.